Cambridge 105 Radio is a winner at this year's Community Radio Awards. Silver, Community Show of the Year, The Alan Brigham Story. Most of us live in houses that aren't that old. And when we complain about people building on the green belt and people ruining the view from your house by building new houses, actually your house probably ruined the view from somebody else's house when it was originally built. Silver, Creative Radio of the Year, The East. Next, you'll be waving banners like those CND marchers in town. Could you hear yourself? And Peter and Sandra will be delinquents on the street. You mark my words. Dad! I haven't even gone out yet. And bronze, female presenter of the year, Lee Chambers. Woke up in the middle of the night to find my cat with his head in a glass of water. That cannot be the first time. Cambridge 105 Radio, award-winning community radio for the city and South Cambridgeshire. Women Making Waves. Maybe I shouldn't, but I, I scroll down a bit of Instagram sometimes. I sort of gravitate towards Insta posts that uh, show how to cut hair. So w- women or men go in and they want a different hairstyle and the hairdressers really just, I suppose, just changes them. It changes their whole hairstyle. It's really therapeutic to watch somebody cut someone's hair. Does that sound a bit odd? Seriously? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yes, it sounds odd. How bored would you have to be? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like watching a painter paint a wall. Yes. And then watch it dry, really. That's it? what my husband says when I invite him to go to the ballet sometimes. He says, I'm never going to the ballet again because it is like watching paint dry. <laughs> does he watch people getting their hair cut then? No, no. Of course he, he doesn't. No, of course he, he doesn't. doesn't. Look, Linda, let's just put this in perspective. It could be like five minutes a week where I think, oh, I'll just have a look at that little Instagram post. Oh, can't wait to get back to my haircut. So what happens? <laughs> do, does a client come in and then do they have a chat about what they're going to be doing no, to the hair? No, they're just, you just literally pan into the lady or the... You don't hear what you're up to at the weekend? No, no, because they have that music on, don't they? There's sort of soft music going on. And the lady sits in there and you just literally see her being transformed. She's got wet hair or maybe she's got tangly hair or she's got blonde hair and it needs to be just resorted. And you just watch and it, they speed up the motion. So within 30 seconds, you've gone from not very good hair colour or condition to somebody who looks amazing. Do a lot of people watch this? I've no idea, Linda. <laughs> Or is it just you? It's just <laughs> yeah, it's probably just me, yeah. So, um, <laughs> you don't really approve, do you? <laughs> well, it's it's strange, Susie. Yes. To be fair. It's strange yes. that you will actually think, Ooh, I must go on to that hairdresser. <laughs> is it the one hairdresser then? Oh no, there's loads, there's loads of Instagram posts about somebody's transformation from having dull-like hair and not very conditioned hair to having a, literally a transformation. But because it's sped up, it's it's a, a nice, quick fix. It's very voyeuristic, isn't it, in many ways? How do you think that conversation starts then? You go into a hairdressing shop to get mm. a haircut. You're looking a bit of a mess, frankly. You've <laughs> yeah. looked better. Yes. You've looked better. Can... And the hairdresser <laughs> says, wow, you're not looking your best. Do you mind if I film you and put you on Instagram? Because we've got this woman called Susie Thorpe who loves to log in and watch the end results and we'll make you look a lot better. And I'll say, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Can I get a discount, please? 
And there's no, 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 we charge you extra for, for yeah, appearance. And it only takes you 30 seconds. No, it doesn't, but it's just the film spinning. But never mind. Everybody has a little quick fix, don't they, somewhere along the line? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Clearly you do. Okay, Stacey, to bring you back to Earth and to the real world, I think we should tell everyone about our guest today. We've got two great women again for you today. First of all, we have Professor Catherine Lee. Really interesting story, actually. In the 1980s, she was impacted by the fact that Section 28 legislation was brought in. And if you were gay at that point, it really did have an impact if you were a teacher in school. And we'll hear all about Catherine and that story. And the fact it was actually it helped inspire a film. Really interesting story. And our second guest is a lady called Hannah Hagen. And wow, this is a very inspiring story as well. She came up with the idea of how she could teach preschool children about computer coding. And it is all about computer coding now. And she started a business called Unplugged Tots. And it's about teaching young children the art of computing. But the interesting part is... It's minus the computers. That's the way to do it. Excellent stuff. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. The idea of teaching preschool tots about computer coding seems a little bit of a stretch. But our guest today has found a way to get over the ideas behind coding in a way that children find engaging. And it all started because of an event run by Cambridge-based Raspberry Pi. We're keen to learn more about this story. So welcome to Women Making Waves. Hannah Hagen. Hello. Hello. Now, before we talk about your Unplugged Tots project, well, let's hear a little bit about you. You've got a background in IT. How did that start? Well, I started off life as a kind of a trainee teacher, secondary school teacher, and realised I wasn't quite the material I needed to be to, <laughs> to become a teacher. <laughs> well, in secondary, secondary school. school. <laughs> I know, that is tough, isn't it? That is really tough. Did you find it that you were dreading going into work every morning? It was hard. And I think because I went straight from A-levels to university, straight into kind of teacher training, it was just, I hadn't had the life experiences, if you like. So I, I stopped that and found myself in a legal technology company kind of a solutions company and ended up being an IT trainer so much much easier teaching adults who want to learn the topic indeed (laughs) indeed yes so that was that was kind of my route into IT on that subject Hannah the IT training how did you get on to be a were you teaching IT so the the company that I worked for sold solutions and IT products to law firms And those lawyers needed training and support on how to use them. So I travelled basically around the country. I went to Dubai, went to America and trained lawyers on how to use these systems. So there's a kind of very tenuous link in that I had all kind of the, the training for how to teach children and then I transferred those skills across to how to teach adults. I can imagine that that would be really welcome on your Mm. CV actually the fact that you are a teacher by profession. Mm. So you then had children yourself did you find it easy 
to continue with your career after having children. It's always a very difficult time for women. It is, it is. So I, I kind of moved away from training. I ended up leaving the profession. So I took, I think it was about three years out in the end. And I've now got a, a fabulous job with a kind of slightly different organisation. And I'm in marketing now. So I'm kind of, again, transferring those skills into marketing. But it is still within the legal IT community. So I'm still on the kind of the periphery, if you like, of IT. Hannah, you sounded a bit sad when you said you were leaving the profession. Am I touching on something that's not really there? Or was that a decision that was a hard decision for you to leave that profession? It's really difficult, I think, because it's almost as if, as women, we have to make that choice. That choice is not an easy choice. It's a a kind of a yes or a no. And I think you, you want to be the mother that's there for your children, or you want to be a career kind of orientated mm. woman. And it's very, very difficult to try and be both. I'm only just starting to be both now. You either throw a load of money into childcare or it shouldn't be this and all way it is. No, you know, just, and it's, it's no. just, it's, and that's, this is one of the reasons why I kind of started to do what I'm doing because I am so lucky that I've, I've engineered my career now where I can have a bit of a kind of a portfolio career where I, I work part time. And I have time in the evenings and at weekends to do my, people call it a side hustle, but it's a, it's a passion project. You know, I am so passionate about what I do with my other hat on because I want to open these doors so that gender isn't a thing that defines your career choices and what you end up doing with your life. It, it shouldn't be about that. You should be able to be and do what you want to do. And this project that you talk about is Unplugged Tots. Mm. How did you come up with the idea behind that? How did that get started, (laughs) Hannah? (laughs) It's really funny because my husband is really into technology. He was a kind of a developer by train and moved into management. And he has always been interested in Raspberry Pis. So Raspberry Pis are kind of little credit card sized computers based in Cambridge. And in 2018, they were hosting a Raspberry Pi festival. Mm-hmm. And he said, come on, let's, let's go along. Let's have a family day out. Let's go along. So I was like, oh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a day out. <laughs> Sending great vibes. Yeah, I know. The enthusiasm is really good. Watching paint dry. That was entirely how I felt about it. I was like, you know, we'll just, we'll just go along and see what it's all about. And honestly, as soon as those doors opened... And I saw all the possibilities and I saw all of these things that people were doing with 3D printers and wearable technology and these little robots that moved. My children at the time were two and four and they were transfixed. They just could not get enough of this stuff. And they ended up trying to do some coding on Scratch Junior and they were getting so frustrated because, you know, at two and four, they couldn't read. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't really use a mouse. And they're like, mommy, help me, mommy, help me. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know what to do. You know, I've got to read all this stuff. I, I don't know what to do. They were so desperate to learn these things. And I'm like, why should the lack of being able to read be a barrier to them? So I wanted to change that. So on the train home, I was thinking all these kinds of things, like how can I get children to learn these things, the kind of the pre-computer coding elements that you kind of need to use them, um, Scratch Junior and the like, how can I get them to do that? And so I was thinking all sorts of things about, you know, screen technology and apps and things. And I thought, 
I need to strip everything right back. Think about what the children actually enjoy, what they do, and they play. They play with things. They play with dolls. They play with, you know, sticks and things. And how can I use those elements within the teaching that I can offer them? So that's that's how it was born, and it's just snowballed from there, really. One of uh, my youngest friends, her grandmother, just so happened to be a doctor of education at the Open University, and I was talking to her about it. And we decided to do a little pilot project with my youngest and a group of her friends. And we ran a six-week pilot where we'd kind of created a load of activities that would strip all of the what we kind of call the core computational thinking themes out, turn them into activities. And they had a whale of a time. They absolutely loved it. And then the the local nursery got wind of it. (laughs) And they wanted, they ended up having 12-week sessions. And then we ended up writing an article in an academic journal about it that got peer-reviewed. So, you know, it completely snowballed and became this well, and still is, this this big thing that there's not that much research out there about how we can use unplugged activities or screen-free activities to help children with computational thinking. So this this little festival that I went to that I was like, oh, fine, we'll go for a day out, actually turned into something absolutely marvellous. And life-changing. And it is, it's just, it is absolutely life-changing for so many people. It's had such a huge ripple effect and I, I had no idea how much of an impact that it would actually have. Mm. I was reading about this actually before we just started to talk to you, Hannah, and what I found really interesting, and I, actually I thought it was quite scary that you wanted to take all screens away and I was thinking well how do you teach coding if you don't have a screen in front of you so you've actually managed to do something that as you say no one else has tried to do that you know of I suppose well there are people doing and actually I, I'm trying to build up a kind of a networking group because I think no one should be in competition when it comes to things like this we're all trying to reach the same end goal in that we're trying to kind of pull up those on the proverbial ladder and kind of push them on their way you know but there are other people doing it and I know of one other lady who she's writing novels so she's got two little characters and she's kind of talking about that kind of the the hardware elements of computers and things like that using these two characters to kind of give children a kind of basis you know there are lots of people trying to do similar kinds of things but I'm coming at it from a more of a, a research and academic point of view as well, because I think it needs to be going into schools and national curriculum a lot more than we realise. So basically, in a nutshell, these are games and activities mm. that are specifically geared to make children think in in a way that will help them in later Mm -hmm. life to think about coding. So Mm it will be organising data, if you want, or Mm organising things in a certain way, or seeing patterns in Mm -hmm. things. It will be all that kind of thinking, I'm assuming. Yep, it is. So the way I've organised it, so computational thinking, there's kind of four key pillars. There's pattern recognition, there's deconstruction, where you're breaking down problems into kind of smaller, easier to manage chunks. There's algorithms, which are essentially a set of rules, and they're sequencing, so those sets of rules, that's the order that, that they should be in. And then I've kind of got periphery concepts. So we've got logic, which involves problem solving and critical thinking. And then I've got debugging and resilience, which is quite a 
big thing for me because I think a lot of emphasis on when children play is on getting things right when actually what we should be doing is if we get things wrong none of that is is a problem and actually sometimes when we get things wrong we actually make a better end product because we've thought through the problem um so that kind of takes us into kind of like the whole growth mindset element as well so then another kind of periphery pillar is maps uh, navigation and direction which i think is something it's not necessarily a core computational thinking theme which is why i've kept it on the periphery but it's quite a key transferable skill into you know later adulthood and things like that you know i know we've got sat nav but learning how to navigate is quite (laughs) quite important It is. It is actually. It did amuse me, Hannah, that one of the reviews on your website is from a nursery manager who mentions that the children were able to use words and learn words such as algorithm. And I just had this vision of a child going home from nursery at night and using that in a sentence and the parents kind of going, what the devil? (laughs) It's so, so amusing, actually. But really good if they learn words like that and what they mean at a really early age. Yeah, it's part of the building blocks of um, of teaching well, them. Well, it absolutely what... is. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, at key stage one, they are supposed to know what an algorithm is and basically perform a very basic algorithm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's absolutely fine. But I think if, if you're going into teaching someone that just kind of from a, a very basic starting point, then you're missing out on so much other stuff you can teach them, yeah. you know? So the last pillar that I want to talk about is just probably one of my most important ones is about the idea of inclusivity, collaboration, communication, and representation. Because I think that underpins everything that I'm trying to do within Unplugged Tots in that everyone should have that seat at the table when it comes to kind of STEM careers or STEM learning and having the ability to listen to other people and kind of advocate for other people. If, if someone's perhaps got a particular skill in an area that you might not have, saying, well, Jimmy can do that because he's better at it than I am, or Sophie can do that because she's got a really good skill in XYZ or something. And having that ability from a really, really early age is so powerful because then it becomes the norm. And then that becomes normal later on in life when you're in the workforce. And I, I see it. I, when I was in the nursery, I saw these children helping each other and working together. And I think that's so, so powerful. So powerful. Earlier you said about leaving your profession to go on to do something else. Have you found now, as a woman with children, how is your work-life balance going now that you have got this unplugged? I would like to say I've got the balance right. (laughs) So I, I work within school hours, four days a week, and I'm very lucky because I'm able to work at home, and that was pre pre pandemic. I'm very lucky that I've got a very supportive husband. But I think because I manage my time, if something doesn't get done for Unplugged Tots, then it's on me. Does does that make sense? Mm. Because it's a a real passion of mine. It doesn't feel like work. I know that sounds really corny, doesn't it? But it's 
No, that's great. That's that's what that's what everyone is striving yeah. for, Hannah. If you do something you love, then you'll never work a yeah. day in your life. You know, you've heard that phrase. That sounds like you've hit the right button there. Yeah, I'm very lucky that I've got two really interesting hats that I wear well I've got three because I'm a chair of governors as well but um it's it's really interesting that they all kind of tie in with each other and it's it's this this whole thing of kind of females in tech it just Mm. is all kind of veering towards that same end goal for me to be honest I like also Hannah and if you hope you don't mind me saying but I liked your vulnerability in this you accept that sometimes things don't work and mm. then you find another way I like that and a lot of people don't quite see that that you you can have things go wrong but then you, you learn from it and you move on and, and it sounds like you are very proud of yourself oh absolutely I mean I never ever thought that in June 2018 I'd go to this festival <laughs> and I'd end up teaching children how to ice a biscuit which is one of our activities we do that introduces the idea of algorithms and sequencing. I never ever thought that I would end up doing this and I absolutely love it because that seeing the look on those children's faces when they just get something or they make a mistake and they laugh, they take those steps back and they work out where that point was that they made the mistake, they debug it, they fix it, they try again and everyone's, you know, cheering for them and reading. I mean, that for me, just, it's just magic. And again, that probably sounds so, so corny, but it's that spark <laughs> to, to light that thing in those children. It's, it's yeah. so special. I'm so privileged to be able to, to do I can it. can just kind of see you in your kitchen. Icing that's too runny and saying, right, children, we're going to debug this. What do we need to do to fix? <laughs> <laughs> do you know that is how it is? <laughs> And then there's these children and they've got sticky hands. Oh, do you know, I love it. I absolutely love it. You mentioned gender and inclusivity. Do you feel optimistic about the future when it comes to getting more women into STEM? Absolutely. I think there are a lot more females in leadership roles that are opening the proverbial door and welcoming everyone in. And I think there's a lot more male advocates that are kind of helping everyone as well. When I started, it was all because I've got two girls. It was all about, we must get more females. And actually, it isn't about that anymore. It's everyone. Everyone needs to have some sort of representation. Do you think there is a a route for national curriculum to have your teaching programme as well in there? Absolutely. I think one of the projects that we're working on now, we're looking at early years and creating a kind of assessment framework. So one of the things that happens is teaching professionals will do a degree and a PGCE. And those professionals might have done a kind of standard degree in a, I don't know, English, math, science subject or something. They might not have necessarily done anything to do with tech. And so you're trying to teach children all of these things that are already on the national curriculum. And then you're being told, well, we need some ed tech stuff. There's limited guidance out there. There's limited assessment criteria out there. And so what we are working on, myself and my colleague Val, is how we can help educational professionals with that. So we're running this project at the minute. Hopefully we'll get some good data to actually give teachers a like a framework so they can say well 
this is the criteria, the success criteria and a baseline so that in the early years, which is nursery age and reception age, there's this foundation of knowledge for the year one teachers to build upon when it is part of the national curriculum. It's just moving everything in that direction, really, Mm. because some of the stuff that I teach, whilst it's specific to early years, my nine-year-old still does some of my stuff because it's fun. (laughs) You know, you don't always need to have technology to teach tech. You really, really don't. If If you strip everything right back to kind of its basic form and apply it to what the children are interested in, then it's engaging for them. You have your website, unpluggedtots.com. So it sounds like that website is aimed towards educationalists, nurseries, parents. Ironically, it's parents. That's who I ended up starting to talk to this idea. And it's kind of morphed into being teachers now. I mean, I still have my downloadable packs and stuff on there and my actual physical packs that I send out. But it seems that there's more of a need for supporting education at the minute. I think this is this is where I'm just spending most of my time at the minute, is research. I love what you just said. You don't need technology to teach tech. That is a very interesting statement, Hannah. It kind of came very, very early on because I didn't want the, not the hassle, but... It was kind of like an admin hassle of of if I was going to do a session with six children, say, having to use a computer for each of them, there's so much extra learning that is required. I didn't want to waste time. I wanted to really get them straight into the detail of what an algorithm is and how we can, you know, apply that in a in a child friendly manner. I didn't want to get bogged down in, you know, this is a mouse and this is what we do with a mouse and this is a screen. This is keep. They're not interested at that age. They just want to play. And so focusing on the fact that they want to play means that we just remove the tech element, the screen element. We did use these B-bots, so they're floor or tabletop-based kind of robots, but they've got no screen. And so in this six-week session, we were building up we're kind of scaffolding the learning kind of week on week. And the last two sessions, we use these B-bots and they have these little buttons on the top, forward, back, left and right. And so that's where the, the maps and direction element came in because we actually went out into the garden and we, we'd drawn a map and the children had to kind of navigate themselves around this garden. And then we apply that back into the classroom and we, we use these B-bots and they program these B-bots to navigate around the garden. So we're kind of taking the idea of a paper-based map, then we're taking it to a 4D version where you're physically navigating around something and then you bring it back in to navigate something else around there. So all of these kind of different layers are all getting inside these children's brains so that when they come to learning about maps, They've got this foundational knowledge already. I do remember years ago when my children were learning uh, maths. And is it the same with maths? That if you you have a great foundation in maths, and if you have a great foundation in technology and digital, that you think in a different way and you think in a more efficient way. Does that that make sense, Hannah? Is that how you feel about your children and the experience you've had so far? Yeah, absolutely. So even in the six weeks... 
I did see a difference between when they approached a certain task in the first week, we'd repeat that same task in week four. And the way that they would approach it would be completely different. That's really interesting. It is really interesting. And that's one of the things that we're looking at in this particular study that we're doing is we've established a baseline. I can't talk too much about it because it's, you know, we've got lots of work to do on it. But we've established what we want that baseline to be. We will then repeat that at the end of the six weeks to see what the progression of learning has been. And I think that's why this this kind of whole idea has kind of morphed into being more about what the teachers want, because they need that more than the parents at this stage. They need to know what the baseline level of knowledge for these children needs to be. I know we've touched on this, but it does seem to be that at a certain age in school life, that after about 13, girls tend not to work, want to go Mm -hmm. into STEM. I don't know. Do you get the impression that that's something we have to tackle, that girls sort of lose interest, they don't want to be nerds? I would love to, and I've just signed up to be a STEM ambassador. I see my focus not only being within kind of the early years, but I see it kind of at the other end of a child's academic career if you like late teens or looking at you know GCSE or A-level options because I want them to see that whilst I'm not a kind of computer programmer as such I'm very much in the, the tech space I see a lot of tech companies and the people on the boards at those particular tech companies and they all look the same you know, they're all the same, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can imagine. And it's, yeah. it's, well, what, you know, what problem are you trying yep. to fix if you all look the same? You know, how can you fix that when yeah. you're all coming at it from the same place? You know, that, that's one of the reasons, as I say, why I thought if, if I become a STEM ambassador, I can go and do some kind of career talks or something to help kind of complete that circle. Absolutely. What a great idea, Hannah. Yeah, well done. That is. It's been brilliant chatting to you about this. It's really enlightening, really interesting. If people want to find out more, they can go to your website, I assume, unpluggedtots.com. They can find out more about you and contact you through that as well, should they want to. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's I'm always open to discussions. I think it's such an interesting area for parents and teachers. Hannah Hagen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, both of you. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Our guest, Professor Catherine Lee, is Professor of Inclusive Education and Leadership at Anglia Ruskin University, as well as holding the post of Deputy Dean for the Faculty of Health, Education, Medicine and Social Care. Catherine started her career teaching in a secondary school and, as a gay teacher, worked under Section 28, a law preventing the promotion of homosexuality in schools. Her experiences encouraged her to make sure that education is more inclusive for the current generation of students, academics and teachers. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Professor Catherine Lee. Hello. Hello. It's great to have you. It is. It's it's lovely to have you here. Did you enjoy your school days, Catherine, going back to your school days? Yes, I, I did. 
I went to a comprehensive school in a mining village in South Yorkshire. It was a, a huge school of 2,000 students. I didn't find school academically that easy, which perhaps, you know, as a professor, you might be surprised about, but I was somebody <laughs> who was kind of in the second set at school. I tried hard and I knew from an early age that I was gay and I enjoyed sport. I'd always played sport, but I, I was a real tomboy. I tended to play football with the boys in the street in my village. And, you know, there's a saying that you can't be what you can't see. And I think looking back, although it was subconscious, that the only people I knew who I suspected might be gay were my own PE teachers. Mm. And so I decided that, you know, I would try and get the qualifications that I needed to go off to do teacher training. And at least if I was a PE teacher, I, I wouldn't have to wear a skirt to work. I'd be able to wear tracksuits and that felt more like me. So I worked really, really hard at school and got a place at what was I am Marsh PE College for Women, uh, which went on to be part of Liverpool Polytechnic. And I did my PE teacher training there. Did you find that you were able to be open about being gay at school? Because I know when I was at school, it was something people didn't really talk about. Did you find that was okay to talk about or was it still quite tricky? No, not not at all. I never said anything to anybody ever. Mm. Any of the girls that were sporty would often get called you know, leather and gay and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So I knew that people would call me that. And so conscious and desperate to fit in, I would really go out of my way then to make sure I had boyfriends and make sure that I was seen with boys. And and, and then I got called slag and whatever. <laughs> so it's like I, I couldn't win. No. <laughs> I couldn't win. It was the era in which, as I was in my A-levels, a miners' strike was on and uh, it was a mining village. And so it was fashion at the time to wear a national coal board donkey jacket as a sort of statement of solidarity with the, the miners and people would have their nicknames on the back of these donkey jackets and and I remember you know I think one week somebody said my nickname on the back of my donkey jacket needed to be Les and the next week it had to be Slag and I thought well I, I can't win either way. Yeah wow and so in later life when you were able to talk about it Catherine did you find then that things that you did were a little bit easier to do because you could come out and, and say you were gay was that something that you found relief from? Yes eventually I think it's not until I started work at Anglia Ruskin University so I left teaching and became a lecturer in 2010 so it wasn't really until that time where I started at ARU. I'd actually been a student at Anglia Ruskin as well and done my master's where I'd reflected in my master's about the Section 28 era. And, and as a student, I'd been a mature student at that, but I'd been out at Anglia Ruskin. And then when the opportunity came up to get a job there, I thought, wow, this is a place where I could go every day and be myself. And the relief I didn't realise how much energy it was taking to manage that kind of intersection where the professional and the personal meets. Because once you've been a teacher and you've talked to people in the staff room and not given anything away, and I, my last school I was at for, say, 10 or 12 years, you can't, even though the law, you know, Section 28 was repealed in 2003, 
couldn't necessarily say, oh, okay, everything I've just told you for the last X number of years is a lie. Mm. This is this is now the truth. And you get you get so used to mm. being cautious and vigilant and somebody who keeps themselves to themselves that you can't just suddenly say, oh, by the way. So it wasn't really until 2010 when I left teaching and entered work in higher education. I thought, wow, this is incredible. It's mm. I had so much energy Mm. much more energy to do the job and could concentrate on doing the job without all this kind of noise in the background I Mm. think for years I'd been doing the whole swan thing where I'd been gliding along and my legs were going like crazy underneath the surface Mm. when I'm thinking what have I said who knows what what if somebody asked me what I did at the weekend what if somebody asks me who I'm going on holiday with all of those normal things and you know you have those transactions in relationship, that's how you build relationships with with colleagues at work. And not being able to do that was mm. weird and strange. And it's only when I stopped doing it that I found, you know, I really have found a home at Anglia Ruskin University. It's a place that I absolutely adore, and I think that is because it's allowed me to be myself. And I think in the within the sort of the first six years that I was there, I think I was promoted four or five times and went <laughs> from a, a course leader through to being a, a deputy dean, just because I could use my energy in the right way yeah. in, in oh, actually yeah. getting the job done. Being able to be yourself is, mm. is huge. What drove that change then when you were, you were working in a school? What made you want to shift and work in the university instead? Was it just a job that came up or was it something you aimed towards? It was circumstances. My partner and I were living in, in a cottage in rural Suffolk and we had no other neighbours apart from the house next door. We'd always got on with the neighbours, but uh, a new family bought the house and they moved into the house and had, I think, six children and enrolled four of them at my school. And the father of the children went to my school, had made an appointment to see my head teacher at the time and said, was my head teacher aware of my living arrangements? Oh, and oh, um, no. And... Hmm said did he think that that was appropriate that I should be teaching young young people this was 2009 it was just before the equality act and my head teacher prioritized his his relationship with this parent and and the fact that you know it was a real place where parent power was huge and and what parents thought was important and and although I was never in trouble or I didn't think that I'd done anything wrong it felt like it was the last straw I just I thought I'm too tired for this I really am too too tired I, I don't need this anymore and I'd been doing some occasional lecturing work for Anglia Ruskin University at one of their out centres in Ipswich and and a job came up and I jumped at it and uh, I wish I'd done it 10 years earlier mm, <laughs> I wish I did it 20, 20 years earlier good grief that's hard to believe that was only 13 years ago Catherine mm. that that happened mm-hmm. it's just ridiculous hopefully nowadays that just well, hopefully would never happen. You'd hope that nobody would ever go into a school and meet the head with a, a story like that. That's just ridiculous, really. Yep, I'm it so, is. So yeah. that's that's <laughs> yeah. truly awful. awful. But mm. you made a you made a positive move from that, didn't you? Which I think that was good I, for you. I, I did, and and at the time I just started to do a PhD, and I was planning on I you know I, there is a big difference between 
the atmosphere, the climate in, in schools in rural areas. And I'd wanted to interview LGBT teachers in, in rural schools. And I I was struggling to find people prepared to be interviewed for my PhD. And actually what I decided to do instead was to write about my own experiences. So that that I've just described to you became an autoethnography, which is like an autobiographical piece of research. So even though it was very painful, it resulted in me... Uh, getting a PhD, which was a little bit of a silver lining from a bit of a, a cloud. Yeah, that is kind of just owning the situation, I would say, actually, and, and, and doing yeah. really, really well. I'll tell you what I'm fascinated by as well. You were saying that when you were at school, you were in the second stream. You didn't really do that well academically. I was exactly the same. And yeah. then, and as you say, you're, you're now a professor. You've gone on, you've done a PhD. I mean, that's quite, you're a bit of a late starter. That, that shows <laughs> other people. No, it shows other people, including myself. It can be done. You're able to learn when you're older and not necessarily when you're younger. It's incredible, really. I don't think it's down to ability. I think it's down to belief. And again, mm -hmm. having the clarity of, of kind of being able to concentrate and focus and really work towards something. I mean, I did my PhD at the Institute of Education. I had a, a lecturer called Professor Michael Rice, who was a trained vicar, not somebody you'd have automatically associated with a, a thesis on LGBT education. And he was a really, really profound influence on me and, and really did teach me how to write. Once I started to tell this story, I couldn't stop. And I actually, I completed my PhD all bit part-time in three and a half years. And usually it's about six or seven to do a PhD part-time, but it was almost as though I had such a lot to to say it was very cathartic and yeah so you know never say never and the things that limit all of us are our own beliefs I believe yeah, yeah. you know I think you're right it's wonderful that as Linda said you owned your story and you and it was a complete relief you had the energy to do it and then on the next level your story that you have owned becomes part of a film and that's another level altogether. We, and I mean, we were all so pleased that we were able to accept ourselves at some level or some time in our lives. But then you come along and you become part of the story. How did you feel about that when you were first approached? To be honest, it was back in 2018 and two young women contacted me. One was a film producer, one was a film director, and they were hoping to get funding for a, a film about Section 28 and I'd done some research about the legacy of Section 28 and I think they googled Section 28 and probably my name had come up and could they talk to me. I talked to them, I met with them, if I'm honest and, and I, it's okay to say this because I've said it to both of them <laughs> since, I thought who on earth would want to watch a film about Section 28? These two people are never ever in a million years going to get funding <laughs> for a film about <laughs> Section 28. Nobody knows what it is. <laughs> Nobody is going to fund something so lacking in glamour or widespread interest. And I talked to them at length about my experiences. And it was then I remembered some diary entries that I'd written about Section 28 for my master's. I'll send these to them and that'll be enough <laughs> sort of thing. And the pandemic hit. I never heard from them again. And I forgot all about them, to be honest. And then I just thought, oh, well, you know, of course they didn't get funding again. Who wants to, <laughs> who wants to watch a film about Section 28? 
And it wasn't until late 2021 they came back and said, oh, good news. We've got our funding and your diary entries, your stories have helped inspire our screenplay. And I, I was absolutely flabbergasted meeting them and them sharing the whole journey with me so generously has just been an absolute joy and and a real silver lining to the whole section 28 cloud it's been fantastic from start to finish and and I've learned such a lot about a sector that I'd had no experience in so it's been fascinating as well. Catherine that's that's a good point actually what have you learned about this whole experience of being invited to become part of the film and also you were a consultant on the film too Mm -hmm. what have you learned that you didn't realize about yourself and about being gay in the UK quite frankly Um, I learned lots of practical things I learned that I can't act and um, (laughs) (laughs) I I won't be challenging Olivia Coleman for a BAFTA anytime soon Um, I learned things like if a film is set in the 1980s it's a good idea not to leave your mobile phone in shot (laughs) that's a great one well done I love that Um, (laughs) So, and plenty and plenty of other practical things like that. I I had a complete respect for how hard everybody worked, what long days they were, how emotionally draining it was. And the, the work that goes into creating, you know, a central character like Jean played by Rosie McEwen. You know, I remember a day we'd probably do something that was maybe 10 seconds of, of the film and and it's made me look at other films now with a, a renewed kind mm. of, or a, or a new appreciation. There is so much involved in doing it and so much work that goes on before being on set ever starts. And I, I guess I, I went into the experience thinking, if I'm honest, it would be a bit of fun. And it affected me quite profoundly. I I remember being with the costume team one day and and chatting to them. I'd I'd sent them lots of photos showing what I was wearing in the the 1980s, out on the town and also um, (laughs) as a PE teacher. And I was chatting to them one day on set and they said, oh, you, you've got a proper job, haven't you, in education? This must seem like a little bit of um, a bit a bit of frivolity, a bit of dress up for you, a bit of fun. And actually, it was the most real thing. And I think probably one of the most real things that has ever happened to me in my in my entire life, you know, it seems a bit of a cliche to almost liken it to Dickens' A Christmas Carol and, and Ebenezer Scrooge, but it literally was like standing in that gym that had been left completely as it had been since the 1980s, seeing somebody in a shell suit with netballers on an ordinary day, exactly like I had during my career as a PE teacher, and seeing Rosie McEwen as Jean embody the things that we'd spent hours and hours talking about, never been in the moment, yeah. always being a couple of sentences ahead of yourself in case you were going to accidentally say something that outed you, being, being so anxious around the kids. I mean, you know, being a PE teacher is about physicality. You know, it's about showing young people how to move, what to do, demonstrating things. And I was so self-conscious and reticent and and anxious Mm. 
And to see then somebody else playing this role, I felt so sad and and full of regret, really. Your friends now, (laughs) seeing the film, what was their reaction to it and anybody's reaction that you've known for a long time, Catherine? What what did they feel about it? (laughs) It's strange. I mean, the... My heterosexual friends and colleagues, even some of those that were teachers during the time, have been really quite surprised and said, oh, my God, I had no idea you were going through all of that. Or those that were teachers in other schools have said, I never knew anybody that was gay in my staff room. Now I know why. I've had people who were students between 1988 and 2003 who are gay who've said, I now understand why I never had a role model. I never had anybody to talk to at school. I never saw anybody like me in the curriculum. I never read a book with a gay character. And thank you for this film because because it, it explains to me why that was the case. And you were at the Venice Film Festival, weren't you, when it was first previewed? How did that feel? (laughs) (laughs) It was really, really emotional. I I mean, first of all, there were only a handful of us went to to Venice and to be on the red carpet with Rosie McEwen, who played Jean, and Georgia Oakley, the director, and Helen Cifrey, the the producer, and to have my photo taken alongside <laughs> them was, it was literally, I felt as though I would stepped inside the TV or I was in the pages of Hello or something. So the film got a standing ovation. I, I think I sobbed most of the way through the film. Um, <laughs> I, but it, but they, it was just, I don't know what it was relief that this story was being told. It was pride in all these people who were, you know, are significantly younger than me. Most of them weren't born during Section 28. And they they'd captured the claustrophobia and the and the time and the the whole environment so, so well. So I, I was just so incredibly proud of them all. So yeah, yeah very emotional. And it's an emotional thing, actually, that we've come this far because things have changed so much in the last 20 years as well with regard to to being gay and and, or or being any of the LBGTQ, you know, whatever you want to be. People are more allowed to be what they want to be now, I think. I think you're absolutely right. And sometimes I struggle to keep up. And I think in a way that I'm still on occasions quite guarded people often say oh when did you come out and you know you come out most weeks if you're lgbtq every time you meet somebody new every time you drop your car off for an mot and the guy says is your husband picking it up today love you know all of that kind of thing and you think hang on do i come out now do i you know coming out is something that you that you have to do and i i'm absolutely thrilled when i see you know particularly students at aru be really proud and comfortable in their sexual and gender identities but equally we're a product of our past you know i remember distinctly walking out of my house um, when i was a young pe teacher and and seeing the word dyke in massive letters across the bonnet of my little blue ford fiesta and having fireworks through the letterbox and 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 just because the world's moved on (laughs) it's not always that easy to suddenly then trust everybody and be as sort of relaxed and calm and confident 
as the world is ready for me to be, mm. if that makes yeah, sense. That's yeah. a really good point, yeah. actually, which yeah. is something I hadn't thought about. You're no. right. Yeah, you're right. How important is it to continue producing and being part of films like Blue Jean as well? You know, we need to see more of these films, don't we? Especially for women, I think. Do you not agree, Catherine? Yeah, I definitely, definitely do. I mean, I think it's telling that this is the first film about Section 28 from, well, it's, you know, in schools at all, but from a lesbian perspective. And I think, you know, this particular era, the, the late 80s and early 90s, for the LGBT community, the narratives that are out there are dominated by the AIDS crisis. And rightly so. You know, if you look at the series on Channel 4 called It's a Sin, mm. I don't know whether you, you saw that, yes. but that was very much around the AIDS crisis. And, and you know, it's absolutely justifiable why the, the gay male narrative of the, the late 80s and 90s dominates that era. But there were those of us who were lesbians in same-sex relationships, just quietly getting on with things, not affected by AIDS in particular, but still have a story to tell. I will be forever grateful to to Georgia Oakley, to Helen Safray and Rosie McEwen as, as three incredible women that have told a story that in some ways is not that remarkable. You know, Blue Jean is very much a film about identity and it's about the everyday of Section 28. It's mm. it's not about a, a huge incident on a personal level. And I, and I know talking to other people that were teachers during Section 28 is such a relief that suddenly our story has been told. You've got a book coming out very shortly. Tell us about that. Yes, I have a book that is going to be due out in February 2023 and it is called Pretended Schools and Section 28 and I've used um, the title Pretended because it's lifted from the wording of Section 28 which said that schools must not promote homosexuality as a pretended family relationship and I look back on my own history as a teacher and think that I needed to pretend all the way through. I pretended to have boyfriends, I pretended to live on my own. I I pretended not to be interested in leadership and, and management because it involved me being more prominent in the school community. The book itself is part sort of social and cultural history, looking at lesbian and gay teachers, but it also has the the diary entries, some of which I shared for the film Blue Jean. And the end of the, the book is a celebration of how far we've come and also a little bit about my experiences on the uh, on the set of the film. So uh, hopefully it's, even though the, the topic of Section 28 isn't necessarily um, automatically uplifting, I, I hope the book itself will show at least that for the Section 28 uh, cloud, for me at least, there's definitely been a, a silver lining. So, yeah, Pretended, and it's been published by John Catt Publishers in February. Catherine, what would you say to people in the, in the same situation as you and younger generation as well? I think my takeaway from all of this is that we are all at our best when we can be ourselves. I used to think that coming out, actually was something that was only for LGBT people. And actually, I've realised since I've been able to come out, particularly in the, in the workplace, that 
we all come out for lots of different reasons. We all have perhaps family circumstances that might not be as we would want, or we might have identify in all sorts of different ways. And actually, most of us at some point in our lives feel different, feel othered. And I think that when you are able to be yourself, you give other people permission to be them themselves as well. Mm. And it's so empowering. And actually pretending to be somebody you're not is such a waste of energy. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's a lovely piece of inspiration there. Thank you very much, Catherine. Well, I, I think you're also a remarkable woman, Professor Catherine Lee. Yes. And it's been great chatting to you today mm. and hearing your story. Yes. And thank, thank you very much for coming on Women Making Waves today. Thank you for inviting me. That's all we've got time for today on Women Making Waves. Our thanks go to our guests, Professor Catherine Lee and Hannah Hagen. We're always on the lookout to feature women living extraordinary lives. So please do contact us if you know of someone we should be talking to. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves. And you can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews. See you next time. Bye. Bye.